Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Todd Vashan. And Todd, it's wonderful to meet you. Now, those almost look like records behind you and to your side. Are they really LPs, or is it just the shape that's confusing me? No, that's my vinyl record collection. I have several thousand. There's even more off the screen, which you probably can't see. <laughs> it takes me back to my days working in radio, going into the the record library. Uh, I would be working Sunday shifts, and I had maybe an hour and a half between broadcasts during my long Sunday shift, and I would steal about 15 45s and drive home with them and record them. Uh, <laughs> and then take them back. And it was always a great race against time to get the recording done in time to return them to the office library. Oh, I, I can relate to that. I did, I did college radio for a number of years myself. I had hosted a college radio program throughout the 90s, and I was a, a DJ. So um, being one of the music directors for the station, we would get the promo versions of the, of albums, the singles before they were released in the stores. So I would often try to develop good relationships with the record label so they would send an extra copy of the promo. So I have quite a few of those kind of white label first release press runs of, uh, of various songs from the 80s and 90s sitting back and, there, too. And Todd, have you returned to vinyl or did you never leave? I never left. <laughs> wow. That's I do stream digital music. It's convenient, but I, I still, uh, I actually still buy vinyl records. My collection's still growing. Well, apparently demand is outstripping supply in that there aren't enough factories in the United States to make the damn things in terms of what people want. And here in Spain, if you go into a reasonably fancy department store, you can be paying hundreds of euros for one of those old portable battery driven record players that only played 45s and 78s. You can pay 350 euro for one of those things. Yeah. So you're not I alone. Have my, <laughs> I have my original Techniques SL1200s, the kind of mainstay DJ turntables, which they stopped making. And I, I don't even know what I could sell one for use now. Certainly mm -hmm. probably triple what I paid for it new. <laughs> uh, anyhow, that's not what we're here to discuss, though. It's, I'm very pleased that what I thought might be records actually are. <laughs> so what I'd like to ask you, Todd, Prof T, Prof V, to begin with, is to share with us, if you would, what's troubling you, dynamizing you, preoccupying you, interesting you right now. Hmm. I have to say the I think the essence of what's been troubling me in, in recent years is kind of this rising um, assault on, on democracy. Right. There's this kind of rising um, trend of people supporting fascism or losing faith in government institutions and public institutions and and public education um and i think that is largely tied up so much with the the out of control economic inequality we've been experiencing in our societies over the past 30 to 40 years the concentration of wealth and income in the hands of fewer and fewer people um, and then those folks, of course, using that that money in the form of power to affect politics, to ensure that they continue to get more and more of a, a, their share of the pie and then leaving working people uh, essentially feeling left behind both by employers and companies, but feeling left behind by their governments and losing faith in, in democratic institutions because of that. This also sounds like part of the betrayal 
of the working class by the Democratic Party, let's be honest. Yes. The way in which that's opened up a certain space, particularly for white working class straight men, that anti-proletarian forces in the Republican Party have stepped up to occupy mm -hmm. by using wedge issues, even as these forces of reaction, as you say, are creating the conditions for increasing inequality. But the fact is the Democrats did bugger all to help working people through years of hegemony, right? Mm -hmm. um, the thing that interests me in what you're saying, there's a lot that interests me that I think is important, but when I look back on my years living in the US, the one real place of recourse that I saw for working people was the courts, because politics had failed them almost utterly at the federal level. But the courts would look at claims, torts, etc., that affected masses of working people as a collective. That was one place of appeal, it seemed to me. Mm -hmm. But now what you're describing, and I'm not here identifying the working class as a particular site of this, but it's a general question, is that it seems to me that in the US, public opinion, certainly within the Republican Party, has moved against a separation of powers, moved even against the legal system, despite the fetishization of the military, the fetishization of the police, and the complete domination of the Supreme Court by the forces of reaction. So there's mm -hmm. something going on there that's quite weird, no? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we've, in general, like you said, seen a, a shift of politics of both parties. Like the Republican Party has shifted further and further to the right to be a proto-fascist party at this point. Yeah. And the Democrats have become essentially a Hello Kitty um, you know, a center right party at best, right? So we have kind of two parties of capital and there's no labor party. There's no party of the working class, right? The Democrats play plenty of lip service to it. And they, of course, rely on uh, labor unions to turn out members in elections as, as their one of their main ways to hang on to some of the states where they still remain in power. Um, but at the end of the day, like, show me the money, right? You know, wages have been stagnant since 1978. The actual buying power of the average production worker has been flat for decades. Uh, but we've seen the share of the income going to the top 1% skyrocketing, right? We see billionaires uh, on a level that we have never seen in human history. I mean, the Jeff Bezos of the world, like the emperors of the past can't even hold a candle to the amount of wealth that these folks have to, you know, fly their, their themselves into outer space if they'd like, you know, like, it's 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 almost unbelievable. We're living in like dystopian sci-fi times, um, but I, I try to find glimmers of hope, right? And and I do find my my home in that is the labor movement. I do find that there still is a very progressive wing within the American labor movement that's trying to organize and build the kind of power that's needed across racial lines and across different. Um, wedge issues to try and build the kind of power that working people need to restore some form of equality and, and faith in, democ in democracy as an institution. Uh, but it's a, it's a very big uphill battle. And, you know, that's the topic of my book really is looking at the intersection of labor and climate change, because climate change, as you said, is one of those really wedge issues that gets pulled out a lot to, to bring working people, you know, to vote against their, what might be their economic interests because of fears of, uh, you know, the green economy taking away everything that they have. And before we get on to talking about the book, I had a question to ask you about your own role in this, because 
you have a history working not only with the union movement but for the union movement and as a participant in the union movement. So you know it from the inside out. Could you reflect on that a little bit? And then perhaps we could chat about this com complex relationship of environment and labor that you address so brilliantly in your new book. Yeah, I mean, my introduction to the labor movement came at at a point in time in the in the late 1980s. I was a middle school student. I was probably 13 years old. And my parents owned a small business at the time, actually a, a gas station, believe it or not. So selling gasoline it was a small little general store gas station. And um, we were facing serious economic hardship, facing bankruptcy at the time. There was a variety of economic factors leading to that. Um, but the long and short of it is my dad was a volunteer in the local fire department. And one of his fellow firefighters told him about an opportunity to get involved with the carpenters union to build a new power plant. So he was able to go down to the carpenters union hall and he got involved in this project building a power plant. And I got to tell you, like we within a year went from really struggling, working poor to a solidly middle class income. And from that point forward, you know, my dad was anytime you get a job, it's got to be a union job. So all through my high school teenage years, my summer jobs were working at the factory as a member of the steel workers. If I was washing dishes at the nursing home, it was with the SEIU. I was in the laborers union as a fire watch, which basically means you sit on a milk crate with a fire extinguisher and you watch the people doing the welding and make sure the sparks don't start anything on fire. Um, so I, I just really took it to heart how important it is to have a voice on the job, to have dignity, but also to have the kind of wages you need to pay the bills. Toby, 1992, working as a laborer in the U.S., I was making $15 an hour as a 17-year-old, right? We have people that are working adults with children that are still fighting to get $15 an hour for the labor that they're doing today in 2024, you know, 30 plus years later. So uh, I went on to become a carpenter myself. I went through the apprenticeship program, worked in the energy sector a bit, worked at a nuclear power plant many times during the refuelings, building the scaffolding so that the other skilled trades could come in and fix the pipes and replace wires and do all of those pieces of it. Right. Um, so, yeah, I definitely am well steeped in, in the labor movement, both as a as a participant, but also a beneficiary of it from you know my parents experience of entering into the unionized workforce. And just uh, the plurality of our listeners, Todd, are in the U.S., but not the majority. So just to give some quick context, SEIU is Service Employees International Union. And also moving on from the boring context, but that can help people to understand things, I think. This indicates that from a very early age, your parents pumping gas as part of their general store your your father transitioning to help build an energy plant. You're working on a uranium site. Energy and labor were very closely connected for you. Very yeah. closely connected. Mm -hmm. When did environmentalism figure into that for you, or was it always there? Um, growing up in a rural area, I was always concerned for the environment. I enjoyed the outdoors, so I kind of had a natural, you know, protect the wilderness kind of mindset. I didn't like it when I saw the old farms getting turned into housing developments. I didn't like it when they were clearing forests to put up strip malls. So those sort of things always kind of irked me because I, I felt like we needed to preserve the, you know, the beautiful nature that we have. Um, but as far as climate change, I have to say that really came about when I had children and I started to learn 
about what we were actually doing, right? I mean, I, of course, learned about climate change much earlier as at about the same time, or actually, it was in the late 80s when um, the NASA scientist James Hansen went and made the presentation before U.S. Congress. And then we learned about that in school in eighth grade about the greenhouse effect and how burning fossil fuels and deforestation was causing global warming, which would have all of these bad effects sometime way distant in the future. Um, fast forward, you know, 20 years later, and I have three young children and we're seeing, you know, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Sandy. We're starting to see that all of those far distant bad side effects are have all come to be reality and, and they're getting worse year after year. The planet's getting hotter and hotter. So that was really the point at which it occurred to me that we have a problem, right? We need to address the climate crisis so we can have a livable planet for our children and grandchildren. But at the same time, unionization has been declining in the U.S. for decades, largely because, you know, manufacturing was outsourced. So all those manufacturing union jobs gone, um, the rise of the service sector economy. And, and it's been so difficult to organize new unions in that area because U.S. labor law has been essentially gutted and it's so pro-employer that it's very difficult for workers to successfully organize these new industries. So what we're left with is only 6% of private sector workers have a union. And a big chunk of those folks are in fossil fuels, construction, and the defense industry, right? So those are kind of the remaining really decent blue-collar jobs that you can get coming out of high school without a college degree and making a living wage, you know, a family-sustaining wage and having health insurance and, and a, a retirement or a pension plan. How do we, you know, balance these two problems, right? Like we have this rising inequality what are those workers going to shift into if they if these jobs in fossil fuels go away? A job at Walmart for $13 an hour with no health care? Because that's a lot of what our economy is at this point. So we have this these two crises. We've got the climate change crisis and we've got the inequality crisis. So that's really why I dug in on the book to figure out, like, what can we be doing to address both of them? Because I don't think you can address one without the other. There's a stereotype that's very active, and not only in the United States, which says it's a white, middle-class, upper-middle-class, educated thing to be anxious about the environment and to favor the green transition versus a proletarian, immigrant, and white working person's desire to survive financially and to have whatever consumer comforts they manage to be sustained. That sort of stereotype haunts your book, I think, although mm -hmm. you want to explode it at various points. Yeah. Yeah, and that's it. it. It's just that. It is a stereotype. Certainly there's some trends, right, and, and trends. We can find trends for all sorts of things, right, but it doesn't mean that any given individual um, is going to fall neatly into one category or the other. And there's a third group that I would put in there, too, right? We have, you know, a lot of uh, communities of color who have been disproportionately harmed by environmental pollution, right? Because of the because of the actions of a lot of the upper middle class white environmental movement that have led to the siting of toxic plants in neighborhoods in poorer communities of color. And then also and, we've and had Amazon warehouses and Amazon. Right. Exactly. 
So, which again, have huge environmental impacts. Those roofs and parking lots, where does all that water go? It floods the houses next door that didn't used to flood because now there's nowhere for the rain to go. It just runs right off the roofs and the asphalt. It goes right to the neighborhood next door. Trucks coming and going 24-7. The diesel fumes. Brains of young people. Yeah. 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 And then also we've had the, you know, the history of structural racism and discrimination in hiring in the, you know, throughout U.S. history. But those legacies go on for decades, right? The workers who were able to get into some of the skilled trades occupations in the fossil fuel industry in the 70s or 80s were predominantly white. And then they were able to create pathways for their children and grandchildren to go into those lucrative careers. The workers who were excluded from those opportunities back then weren't able to build that generational, um, you know, cultural capital and, and economic power for their family, their children to get into those occupations. So it's kind of a double whammy that we've got the, you know, getting more of the pollution from the facilities and also not necessarily getting the jobs that they create, which could be a pathway out of poverty and into a different and better neighborhood, right? Away from the the polluting, um, you know, toxic facilities. So yeah, there's it's really complex and there's a lot of, intersections too right so even a lot of these you mentioned you know we have blue collar white working class folks who may have children that are really concerned about climate change because they Mm -hmm. see what the hell is the world going to look like in 2050 if we don't stop burning fossil fuels soon i mean what what am i going to be doing for a job am i going to have a place to live if you live near the coast is this whole city going to be underwater What's the value of the family home going to be? I get to inherit a family home that's underwater. Is that worth anything? <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, I have friends in New Orleans who are trying to get out because they realize the money that they've sunk, pardon the expression, into their homes will be of no use, certainly to any grandchildren and probably even to their own children once their own children are middle-aged because they won't be in New Orleans. Right. And of course, This gets not more critical, but similarly critical if you think about what could happen to New York uh, City uh, and uh, surround areas in the tri-state that are close to the water. Yeah, Yeah. these these are real issues. Sorry for the intervention of the podcat, by the way. He is an Mm -hmm. adolescent and hence requires, on the one hand, massive love, but only on his terms, and only at certain times. You know I what I'm understand it very well. I have one wandering around too. She's getting a bit older now. Jean Grey. She uh, okay. She's an up-in. She usually, when she hears me on Zoom, she thinks I'm talking to her because there's no other people in the room. So she gets all perked up because she presumes that I'm talking to her. <laughs> this guy likes to intervene in any keyboard work. So if I dare to touch the keyboard... He goes behind it and then attacks me with his claws, you know, because this is somehow rather wrong behavior that must be constrained and channeled elsewhere. So <laughs> was there a, has there been a moment, again, to get autobiographical, if I may, Prof T, when you were in some way conflicted in terms of the stereotype yourself as worker and as environmentalist or proto-environmentalist in those days? Was this something that you had to deal with as an internal dynamic oscillation, contradiction, dialectic? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh Um, I mean, it made me look for 
what are the alternatives? How can we, how can we have good jobs that are not in the fossil fuel sector? And that's what really led me into the work that I, I do now. I'm the director of the labor education center at Rutgers university. So a lot of my work now is trying to help working people build power, right? Educate through education. And I think that the more that we can see unions arise and thrive in other sectors of the economy to make those jobs be as good of jobs as the fossil fuel jobs are currently. And the fossil fuel jobs are, were not always good jobs, right? They were good jobs after they were organized into unions and then generations of going on strike and collective bargaining and contract after contract after contract to get to where they are today, right? They're not just naturally good jobs. The bosses of the owners of the oil company didn't just create great jobs for workers back in the 1880s. No, they were really violent struggles to, to win recognition of the union in the first place, to win a first contract, and then all of the fights every few years to win a, a new and better contract to, you know, to get to where they are today. So those kind of struggles, we need to see that happening. And we are starting to see that happen in the U.S. and other areas of the economy. Um, but it takes time. And like I said before, our labor law is unfortunately not so um, friendly to workers that are trying to to improve their lot in life, but through collective action. Right. And returning to the book, it's with Temple University Press. Mm -hmm. And there's the title is Clean Air and Good Jobs. U.S. labor and the struggle for climate justice. And you have an acronym that you use a lot. I think it's LCM. The Labor Climate Movement. Yep, LCM. All right. So I sound like I'm shilling for Temple, but actually <laughs> all they did was send me, a, and this was very kind of them, an electronic copy of the book that I have for 12 months that then disappears into the ether. So oh, does it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a great system. I mean, it's trying to prevent people sharing or pirating these things. Mm -hmm. okay. But it's my first experience of this. Now, like you did with those 45 records back in the day? <laughs> <laughs> right. Temporary pilfering. <laughs> I, I hadn't made that connection, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, I'm the, the pirate of Madrid here. So <laughs> the book is terrific. It's plainly written, but also theoretically informed. It's empirical and it has a politics. But tell us, and I know that because I had to read it quickly, lest it disappear into the ether. No, in all seriousness, it's been it's very generous of Temple to give me the chance to, to read this wonderful volume and to connect with you. Tell us where we are with the LCM and where we need to get. Sure. So maybe I start with just a quick definition for, for listeners. So the labor yeah. climate movement, what I refer to in the book as the labor climate movement are climate activists within the U.S. labor movement. So a lot of them are rank and file members. They could be local level leaders. Occasionally you can get up to really high ranking union officials, but for the most part, it's a grassroots um, movement of union members that are trying to make their unions and the labor movement as a whole be more proactive on on climate change, right? To try and shift us from fossil fuels to renewable energy, but to do it in a way that doesn't throw workers under the bus. Because the fear is if we leave the environment up to the environmentalists, workers are going to get left behind just like they were when globalization happened, right? There was nothing, there were no measures put in place. There were these kind of um, 
unfunded, not very effective job retraining programs that essentially left people going from good jobs into lousy jobs, right? With maybe a couple community college classes along the way. So the idea is labor needs to be leading and driving the shift because we know the shift has to happen. If we're going to you know, have a livable planet, we absolutely have to address climate change. Working people and through their unions need to be leading what that change looks like to ensure that the jobs we go into after this are good jobs, that they can reduce inequality rather than increase inequality, that they can sustain families rather than having workers you know, living in poverty or having to stay at home living with their parents until they're 40 because there's, their jobs don't pay enough to cover rent. So the labor climate movement really started to arise in the early 2000s, um, according to my, you know, my research. And um, it manifests in, in various different forms. There's There are actual organizations that go cut across different unions. There's a group called the Labor Network for Sustainability, um, which, you know, pulls together climate activists who are trying to think about these questions of what a just transition is. Um, and of course, just transition, meaning transitioning away from fossil fuels in a way that's just, right? That's fair. Um, but then there's also individual groups within their own unions. So my union at the at Rutgers University, we have a faculty union, and our faculty union has a climate justice committee. So that committee tries to think of ways that we can bring demands into our bargaining with the university that would, you know, negotiate solutions to the climate change through collective bargaining. We also partner with the students and community groups, and we've done, you know, the student climate strikes. We've participated in those and made demands for the university to divest from fossil fuels, which they agreed to do, um, to create a climate action plan, which they also agreed to do. So the university now has a plan to decarbonize over the next couple decades. So those are kind of the ways that the labor climate movement is using the power that you have as an organi- or as a labor organization to bring in climate demands in a way that also uplift workers' demands, right? So to fuse those two together. Um, I think the most exciting and interesting example that we've seen recently was the big United Auto Workers strike this past summer. I know that probably, I'm sure you heard about that across seas as well. It was a pretty big deal here in the U.S. But one of those demands they had there was a a just transition for workers into the new battery plants, right? Because for electric cars... These new plants were being created to build the batteries. And part of one of the demands of the strike was that those new plants that build batteries should fall under the master contract and get the same pay and benefits as all of the other auto workers. And they were able to win that, right? Which is great because one of the fears that a lot of conservative politicians will push is, oh, look, you're going to lose your great job making fuel injectors and you're going to be making batteries at minimum wage instead, right? So... They were able to, you know, through their bargaining and through their strike to ensure that now the the electric vehicle market, at least for the big three automakers, is going to have the same quality of jobs that the combustion uh, vehicle plants do. Uh, I'm Prof Todd. I'm I'm going back, back, back to before you were born, to the <laughs> late '60s, when, as I recall, the data showed that the chief executive officer of GM, General Motors earned, in inverted commas, 10 times what the average worker on the line was paid. 30 years later, it was 350 times. We have this staggering inequality and even bonuses paid to, 
you know, corporate lizards who contribute nothing. Mm-hmm. None of this gets serious attention in U.S. political campaigning, in my experience. No. None of it. I mean, Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders. That's that's, that's, that's uh, it. <laughs> the squad, no? Mm-hmm. Ocasio-Cortez and others. Mm-hmm. It's something that working women in many cases and immigrants and other minorities will talk about. The white working class will talk about. But it's essentially invisible in campaign advertising. How can that, that inequality issue that's haunting, that's stalking the blockage that is experienced in articulating environmentalism to workerism, how can that be made more overtly a topic of serious discussion when everybody in the United States knows it's true? Right. I mean, I'm I think sorry, this just, is asking you to do the impossible, but I know I think I think, well, <laughs> one, we need we need more working class candidates. I think we need, you know, the part of the education and we have done a great job of this. If you look at the state of New Jersey, we have a very large number of, you know, working class folks from the labor movement who have been educated on how to run for office and have actually won seats in the state legislature. And you see that does translate into pro worker policies over the years. Right. So getting more people who understand that and who are incensed by it running for office. Um, but unfortunately, we also have a campaign finance system that is totally broken. So all of that inequality, all of that money that goes to the top is is used to influence campaigns. And, and um, unfortunately, money talks, right? You know, Saul Alinsky said the only way to be organized money is organized people, Right. So that's where the labor movement can come in. But unfortunately, the labor movement's not as large as it once was. But um, we need to organize more people and then get more ordinary people to run for office, I believe. that's. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's it. That's, 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 that's my answer. <laughs> well, I think that's a really good answer. For those who don't know, New Jersey is historically a blue-collar state with an important factory sector. There's a great sign on one of the bridges that says... Um, Trenton makes, the world takes. (laughs) And this was before globalization took over and there was pressure for for lower wage involvement in secondary industry manufacturing, as you've already described. And that's been a real problem, obviously, because so-called structural adjustment was never enacted in a serious way, as you say. Here are a couple of community college credits, which may have been handy, but right. it's not what was required or was a part was, of what was required. There was no guaranteed job at the end, and the job certainly was never of equal yeah. quality to the job that, that was lost. You know, I think an important piece of this that does get overlooked, too, in that that it, the worker CEO to worker ratio is really the financialization of our economy, right? The rise of Wall Street, a lot of that compensation of those CEOs is in the form of stocks and bonds. And then those corporations are, you know, if you're a CEO of a Fortune 500 company and 95% of your pay is in the form of stocks, what's your decision-making process gonna be? How can I make the stock values worth more? We're gonna do stock buybacks, right? We're gonna do all of these, you know, Wall Street focused business activities have nothing to do with the production of products. 
that in the end screw over consumers and screw over workers and just suck the wealth out of the economy and put it into again the hands of the few. Yeah. Fictive capital. So uh, you mentioned earlier the center that you're involved with that you direct. Could you tell us a bit about that and this ability to articulate a research one university, Rutgers, named after someone who was meant to give it all this money and then never did, of course, <laughs> kind of a scandal, but whatever. Nevertheless, a famous research one public university, how it can articulate uh, that relative privilege yeah, to the lives of working people, because that's a quite a jump historically in the U.S., yeah. Well, the, the program that I run was actually developed in 1947, um, and, and it was mandated by the New Jersey state legislature and signed into law by the governor, Alfred Driscoll, at the time. And that wasn't uncommon. There were a number of other states that created similar programs, right? If you can look at Cornell University, I believe University of Illinois, all around that time, coming back from World War II, there was a lot of labor unrest in the U.S. economy, right? The men were coming back from war. Factory jobs were largely occupied by women at that time. There were wartime labor boards and wage standards. And we we're going back into, you know, kind of gloves off capitalism was coming back into effect. The government role in the economy was being pulled back. So there were strikes happening everywhere. Um, and a lot of individual states said we need to create um, these educational um, programs that can educate workers and management alike on the benefits of having a functioning labor relations system based on collective bargaining, um, which, you know, was worked well for a good 15 or 20 years, right? <laughs> Until globalization happened, right? If we look at the highest union density in the U.S. was in 1953. People often talk about the 50s as kind of the golden age of American capitalism, at least if you were white and male, that is correct. Um, if you were a black worker, you were still segregated, particularly in the South, so didn't share in those benefits necessarily. But that labor relations system began to come under attack in the 1970s. Um, and a lot of programs like mine have been either defunded or eliminated for political reasons along the way. So there's there's a number of us still left that have programs like this. Um, so we teach, you know, collective bargaining. We teach grievance handling. We teach organizing. We teach labor and employment law. But also, since so few workers are unionized, we also teach non-union workers about their rights and what the process of organizing a union looks like and how you go about doing that, how you create a union in your workplace so that then you can be part of this labor relations system that our program was designed to promote. That's a wonderful thing. And I guess part of the quid pro quo for you will go off to the war and die is that if you come back at all, maimed or otherwise, there'll be a job for you. The promise of full employment the Keynesian miracle until the oil shocks of the early 70s. Part of that also enabled some of this, as had, of course, the Roosevelt reforms of the 30s to try to do something about constructing a semblance of a labor relations machinery mm -hmm. in the United States. Uh, as the Democratic Party articulated itself more and more to organized labor. Now, one of the big things that's changed that we've gestured at in our discussion is the feminization of the labor force in the United States, 
women always worked more because they worked in unpaid as well as paid jobs. But mm -hmm. paid jobs, frequently in the informal sector, frequently very marginalized in secondary labor markets, have been the province of women in the United States for a long time, but increasingly so, and the same for a lot of migrant and minority labor. One of the tasks, it seems to me, of the labor movement is to put those folks front and center without this becoming one more weapon in the arsenal of the right in its appeal to the culturally conservative white man. What's your response? I agree. I, I, I absolutely agree. Um, I think that historically the mission of the labor movement has always been to lift up the least well-off, right? If you raise the floor for the least well-off, you raise the floor for everybody, right? Um, that's, I think, still the mission and still should be the mission of the labor movement. Um, of course, you know, as I said before, our labor law makes it very difficult to organize and, and those sectors in particular, like the service economy has a variety of structural features that make it challenging to organize. It tends to be high turnover, more part-time workers than full-time workers, um, shops opening and closing. And it's, it's, it's not the same beast as a factory was in the 1950s. It was right. a hard capital structure that people had to have a certain set of skills and were not easily replaced. Um, so there's challenges certainly, but at the same time, these jobs are the jobs of the green economy. They are doing the low carbon work that there's a tremendous demand for. And there's only going to be a greater demand as we see an aging population. Care work and education work are going to be two of the uh, the most important parts of our economy when we transition into a, a more sustainable structure, right? If those fossil fuel jobs go away. We're going to also be needing to take care of people as they get older. And we're going to need to be educating people for these new jobs and new technologies that they're going to use. So those are low carbon jobs and those are jobs that have highly been feminized. And as a result of patriarchy and sexism, they pay lower than they should, right? They certainly don't get paid the value for the labor they provide, the goods that they provide for society. Um, you know, it's always one of the more irritating things to look at how much a hedge fund manager makes versus how much a school teacher makes and who is a more useful, doing more useful work for society or how much a nurse makes versus how much a corporate CEO makes, because wages are not determined by, you know, the actual value you produce. Wages are determined by the power that you wield within the economy. Prof, I have one more question for you. Uh, and then I'd like to throw it to you to conclude with anything you'd like to add to or subtract from what we've discussed. Does that sound okay? Sounds good. All right. So here's my conceit. I'm in one of your extramural classes, right? I'm a working person. I can't afford to go to college, but I'm connected to the center in some way, right? And you and your colleagues can see that I'm very committed. But I'm on the side of my family and I, we just need work. I'll do whatever it is, including going back to West Virginia and working in coal. What are you going to say to me? I understand. I mean, you got to take care of your family if you're if that's the opportunity that you see. But you should be aware 
that that job is going to be in danger and it may not be a long-term solution, right? The climate crisis is real, right? There's a, and there's a real threat to those jobs. It's not just a, a politically motivated threat. It's not just environmentalists coming for your jobs, but it's pretty much destined that at some point it may be really late in the game and we may have a whole lot of catastrophes, but at some point the, those kind of jobs are going to be eliminated. So perhaps we should be looking at other alternatives that can get you into a different kind of industry to have longer term prosperity. But I'm not one to stop you from putting food on the plate to feed your family today. <laughs> and would that be a time when you would, or do you think this is playing a a nasty shell game? Would this be a point where you would come in with what my family did, what my dad did, what I did? In other words, I know what it is to work in the conventional energy sector and I think we need to change. Or do you prefer to leave that part of it out? Does that seem unfair to you to trump people if I can, if we can ever use that word as a verb? Yeah, I know, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> or do you feel as though no. it's unfair to trump people by using some personal experience and a kind of conversion that you went through or, you know, that sort of dialectic that you were talking about earlier. No, I'm very open about that. I, I, I think if that person were a real person, they probably would have already known that story about me. Um, that's just how I present myself, right? I'm very much a, a person of my own autobiography. So I like to tell people where I come from and who I am and what my experiences are. So I, I think most of the students in our program are aware of that um, up front. And you know, my experience was that, you know, the carpenters union now I'm, I'm not working as a carpenter anymore. Right. I ended up going back to college during the great recession. That's how I discovered labor education. Um, but you know, my father continued on and retired from the carpenters union, but by the end of his career, that union is working on building offshore wind in Rhode Island. They worked on a wind farm in block Island. And now those unions are really lobbying heavy in New York and New Jersey and Massachusetts to build the offshore wind industry here. And those are all really good jobs creating renewable energy. So there are these good job opportunities. It just sometimes requires matching the workers, right? We, we're going to have the problem of fossil fuel workers being displaced in some location, say West Virginia, but then the new jobs in some other location, say New Jersey, do people want to relocate and how can they afford and, to relocate? And and what are the skills that are needed? And do those skills match, right? In the case of carpentry, there will be some differences, but there's some things in common. In the case of, in inverted commas, unskilled trades, more complicated. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so, Prof, Todd, any last thoughts, anything we've not covered you'd like to address that you would like to add now? Um. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would just say that I would like to pay tribute, I think, to the work of Tony Mazaki. Whenever I use the phrase just transition, I always think it's important to educate people about the kind of origin of where that concept comes from. And Tony Mazaki was a health and safety activist and a labor leader in the oil, chemical and atomic workers union. Um, and, you know, he really came up with this idea of we need to have a super fund for workers, right? We have a super fund for dirt, which means when we close a polluted facility, there's going to be a pot of money to clean up that land. But what about the workers who lost the jobs at that facility? Why don't we have a pool of money to help make them whole, 
So he really came up with this concept of pushing back against, you know, completely unregulated neoliberal market solutions to having some kind of government programs in place and some kind of social safety net and a job guarantee. And even if that means paying workers to retire early or making workers whole and ensuring that the new jobs are going to pay the same as the old jobs, uh, I think that that's an important vehicle for getting us from where we are now, which is on a path to an unsafe, unlivable planet to where we need to be, which is on a sustainable path to having a world that our kids and grandchildren can thrive in. That's a wonderful note of aspiration, but also pragmatism. So, Professor Todd, I want to thank you for having written a wonderful book that I learned much from and for being so generous with your time today. It's been my pleasure, Toby. Thanks for having me.